Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation. A series of illuminated manuscripts in which satyr and broadcasterist Jeremy Hardy undresses the listener with his silver-tongued devilry. In tonight's broadcast, Mr. Hardy explains how to live life to the full. Good evening, and thank you, Peter Donaldson, for that in many ways spoken introduction. Before I introduce tonight's cast, there's been a letter of complaint that I should read out. Dear Mr. Speaks to the Nation, Am I the only person who cannot for the life of me see why the BBC continues to allow radio programmes to be hijacked as a platform for talking? <laughs> I'm sure your so-called audience, if a mob of praying undergraduates high on pot cocaine can be called so-called... <laughs> enjoy your puerile chartist ranting, but I, for one, am appalled by your comments about hit-and-run drivers. While I don't always agree with hit-and-run drivers, I nonetheless defend their right to run people over. Let's try substituting the words hit-and-run drivers with careful drivers and then see how your diatribe sounds. But then the cabal of cautious motorists who control the media would never allow that, would they? Yours faithfully, Norris McPinochet, the gibbet, Walton on angling, Surrey. <laughs> well, thank you, Mr McPinochet. It's always worth writing to complain about radio programmes when there's no-one in your life you can talk to. <laughs> now, please welcome tonight's cast, Gordon Kennedy and Juliet Stevenson. Hello. Hello. Now, Juliet, you're a newcomer to the show. Yes, I am. So don't screw up, OK? <laughs> Yes, I'll try. It's radio. You've got a microphone, you don't have to shout. It's not theatre. Right. Because I did go out on a limb to book you. Thanks. It's OK. Now, Juliet, you've got such a rich and varied CV, but I'm sure most people will always cherish your performance as Beverly in Abigail's party. That was Alison Steadman. Damn it! I knew I knew Alison from somewhere. <laughs> but you've been in stuff as well, though, yeah? Yep. So good, I get some kind of kudos out of having you on. Fine. But anyway, on with the show. So how to live life to the full. Gordon, me old mucker, you large and probably drunken Scottish cliché. <laughs> I'm sure you've been living life to the full. How's your head? I've never had any complaints. Well, <laughs> how do we live life to the full? At the age of 43, I have decided to live each day as though it were my last. So I lie in bed all day, slipping in and out of consciousness. <laughs> Live each day as though it were your last has to be the worst piece of advice a person can listen to. Let's assume that I don't spend my last day on a ventilator, uncertain who I am, but enduring flashbacks of a real or imagined childhood, dimly cognizant of the fact that a woman I no longer recognise as my daughter is making the painful decision to switch me off. Partly because she can no longer bear to see her once proud father denied all dignity and partly because she needs the spare room back and promise she'd never put me in a home. <laughs> and in passing, let me place on record that I do want to be a burden to people. Oh, yes. <laughs> people have been a pain in the backside all my life and I want it wiped by them in my twilight years. <laughs> Anyhow, let's assume that on my last day I'm not in a coma, a psychiatric ward, a death cell or Bournemouth. Let's assume... <laughs> It's my last day and I have my freedom and my faculties. What will I do? Well, here's what I won't do. On my last day, I will not floss. I will not do up my flies. Read the paper, placate anybody, pay any bills or take any vitamins. I probably won't even do my stretching exercises. I will drink an enormous amount, possibly experiment with heroin and commit my first murder. <laughs> 
And with my luck, the phone will ring and it'll be the hospital telling me they sent the wrong results and I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> Problem is, only one day is our last day and all the others, we will have to face the consequences of our actions. Even on our penultimate day, we need to be careful. Do you want to spend your last day in the toilet or in Guantanamo Bay? <laughs> Behaving as though our actions have no repercussions gets us into all kinds of pickles. We postpone sorting our lives out because something will turn up. It does, and it's a debt collector. <laughs> Nothing good ever turns up. What turns up is a cab you didn't order, a salesman, a love child, or the angel of the Lord with bad news. <laughs> and it seems to be becoming less common for friends to just turn up on each other's doorsteps. If you want a social life, you have to organise it. So, Juliet, what did you do last night? Party till you dropped? Um, we had a few people over to dinner. That's a no, then. <laughs> I always think the key to a successful dinner party is to get a takeaway and not invite anyone. Yes, but if you don't invite people around, they invite you, which is worse, because they also invite some other people they really want you to meet. Yes, it's depressing to learn the kind of people our friends imagine we'll be impressed by. People who believe themselves to be characters because they've got a nickname. Yeah, a nickname they made up themselves. My name's Sebastian, but everyone calls me Crusher. Exactly. So, Juliet, uh, do you only invite people you're sure will get on? Oh, I never risk introducing people who might get on. Why? Well, they gang up and you get left out. <laughs> Ooh, that's fascinating. I'd love to talk more about this. You must come to dinner. And I'm thinking, this is dinner. <laughs> I've made dinner. Eat this. Talk now. <laughs> that must be why our friends only introduce us to their rubbish friends. Yeah, exactly. They're stockpiling all the good ones because they don't want us to get hold of them in case they like us. <laughs> and my phone's tapped. OK, Juliet, breathe. <laughs> now... Despite the fact that I said I spend all day in bed drifting in and out of consciousness in order to make a point about how ridiculous it would be to do that, it is nonetheless true. That's because I have no job. The absence of regular employment can make one purposeless, drifting and profoundly happy. <laughs> I do feel guilty if I haven't done any work, but so long as I post a letter, I don't feel too bad. And just because you have nothing to do, it doesn't mean you have to stare at the wall all day. There's the telly. <laughs> the secret... The secret to watchable TV is that absolutely anything is compelling if you let it run. If there were a cable channel that just showed people watching TV 24 hours a day, people would watch it. They might not even notice if there were hidden cameras and it was themselves they were watching. <laughs> if you stare at anything long enough, it becomes fascinating. Robert the Bruce famously hid in an oak tree burning cakes while George Washington cut it down to make wooden teeth. <laughs> But when Robert wasn't doing that, he used to watch this spider that was having a really hard time making a web. Now, I don't want to speak ill of a long-dead spider, but making a web is just about the only thing that is expected of spiders. I'm not suggesting I could make a web, but I'm not a spider. If you are a spider, that's pretty much all anyone wants you to be able to do. But spiders are perhaps the human beings of the animal kingdom, except that we are. What I mean is... <laughs> What I mean is, most human jobs seem to be staffed by people who can't do them. Don't exclude myself in this. My job is basically speaking. I have a grating nasal voice, I mumble, and my diction is terrible, which mm. doesn't amount to a gift. No. <laughs> Perhaps we're all just in the wrong profession. But despite the fact that I understand that capitalism alienates people from their work by expropriating surplus value, I do cleave to the old-fashioned view that we should try to make a go of whatever we do for a living. It's like my daughter's homework. It's got to be done, so I might as well do it to the best of my ability. <laughs> for example, 
If I wanted to be lost in a car, I would drive myself. <laughs> All a cab driver has to do is make sure someone is in the cab and then drive them somewhere. I just want to get to Paddington Station. I didn't say that before they marry my daughter, they must find the jumping tortoise god of Marylebone, slay it and bring me its tongue. I just said Paddington. I didn't say my first is in apple but not in tomato. <laughs> I just said Paddington. I didn't say, where might you find a bear in platforms perusing the timetable? I just said... <laughs> and cab controllers exist to liaise between public and driver. So why, when I phone to book a cab, does it not come? Isn't telling drivers to go and get people pretty much the job? At work, we are not supposed to behave as though at home and say... Oh, I'm sorry, someone rang. Man's voice, I think. Or, <laughs> or woman. I wrote it down somewhere, about a week ago. Unless I dreamt it. And I'm sick of being told he's outside. Obviously, but where? <laughs> he's not inside with me. I'd spot a blue Astra in the front room. <laughs> and why do we give actors awards for acting? What else are they going to do if they're in something? It's not as though acting was an extraordinary act of courage beyond the call of duty. You're not being asked to do a real thing. You've only got to pretend. <laughs> you haven't got to save someone's life, make them happy, or give them an orgasm. They're pretending too. <laughs> People think Anthony Hopkins is brilliant at playing Hannibal Lecter. Why? How do they know? Oh, the bloke who lives upstairs from me is a highly intelligent cannibalistic serial killer, and he's just like that. <laughs> Juliet, Gordon, you're both actors. Yes. Yeah, and you work with directors. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, someone who has to tell you what to do or you won't do it right. You should know. You're actors. You shouldn't need someone to stand over you making sure you don't cock it up. Gordon, do happy. <sighs> now sad. <laughs> Juliet, curiosity. Mm. <laughs> Optimism. Ooh. Both of you, half true admission combined with Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Close enough. I think Gordon wins it, but Juliet can have Best Supporting Actress. Thanks. But I shouldn't have to tell you what to do any more than I should have to tell cab drivers you really want to turn left here because it's the way. <laughs> anyway, my point is... This spider was failing to spin its web. It failed and failed and failed and finally called in a 24-hour emergency cobweb service from the Yellow Pages, giving Robert the idea that battles aren't won by chiefs and presidents, but by people who need the money. <laughs> but this isn't my point. My point is Robert was captivated by watching the spider. This is the untold lesson in the fable. Why did he watch a spider? He wasn't thinking... It's centuries before Clausewitz develops modern theories of warfare, so I'll have to rely on our insect friends to help me devise a military strategy to fight the English. The Scots didn't go into battle singing the ugly bug ball, <laughs> although they will if Mel Gibson has a hand in the movie. <laughs> the spider was interesting to Robert because he had nothing else on, so he just watched it. And if you look at something long enough, it becomes compelling. Big Brother works best not when people do anything dramatic, but when they don't. Incidentally, I've devised a way of punishing the Big Brother inmates, given that they are clearly beyond rehabilitation. What we should do is audition them, get them in the house, and do everything as is, but not put it on the television. <laughs> and when they come out, there's just a windswept car park, no cameras, no Davina, 
Just a bloke sweeping up saying, they've all gone home, mate. They've all gone home. <laughs> Some spectacles are not in the least compelling. Some people feel that living life to the full means that they must set themselves challenges. They take part in huge organised jogging events, such as the London Marathon, which brings our capital to a standstill every year in order to fulfil the yearnings of a few thousand. The rest of us are expected to spectate at the event, all of our other plans being in ruins. Why would I want to watch that? Loads of people all doing exactly the same thing at the same time. If only one person in the world could do it, it'd be worth a look. But it's as common as juggling. I'm sure it's fun to take part. It was fun to take part in the Cultural Revolution, but it was a terrible thing to watch. <laughs> There is a big hole in the Fun Run's good cause mantle, which makes it a good cause poncho, in fact. <laughs> what is the purpose of all this running? Raising money for charity? Ostensibly. Most people give to charity because they're generous. I doubt whether there are people who will only give to something that has the support of long-distance runners. And I doubt whether anyone ever says... I don't care if he can only get the operation in Florida. A penny a mile is what I'm prepared to pay. <laughs> now, if you were to wear a chicken suit... <laughs> Frankly, there is nothing wacky about wearing a funny costume to what is a funny costume convention. As with comic relief, the wackiness is sanctioned. It's normal. If someone wanted to show individuality, they would bring their car. <laughs> If you went to a funeral dressed as the Grim Reaper, that would demonstrate that you really are out of kilter with accepted norms of behaviour. Or that you're Noel Edmonds making a desperately ill-judged attempt at a comeback. And there is something disturbing about our need to achieve. I quite admire Paula Radcliffe for being four miles from the end and thinking, oh, I can't be arsed with this. <laughs> but these are pious times when performance targets must be met, when achievement is required, however pointless. The singer, Heather Small of M People, seems to have made a career of anthems about self-improvement and personal challenges. She exhorted us to search for the hero inside ourselves. And when asked, what have you done today to make you feel proud? I'm tempted to reply, you first, Heather. <laughs> what did she do today? Exfoliate? See her personal trainer, publicist or accountant? Pose for a photo? Give an interview? Maybe even sing a bit if there was time? Actually, she probably did something really nice and kind, but if she did, I don't know about it and it doesn't serve my argument to find out. <laughs> The fact is, most of us don't feel we're living life to the full unless some of what we're doing is to give something back. Juliet, what do you do to feel like a better person? Besides makeup? Yeah. Um, well, I think you've really got to sort yourself out before you can help others. Because you can't offer your whole self unless you're at one with yourself. Is this philosophy of yours all just contemplation, or does it have a kicking and fighting with sticks bit? <laughs> It's not, it's, it's not based on any kind of violent yoga, no, it's just my personal view. But I also try to approach work in an ethical way, you know, being a good equity member, mm. making sure my colleagues get proper breaks. Several months, sometimes. <laughs> Gordon, as a fellow actor, do you try to bring integrity to your work? Well, I try to give of my best. Sometimes it's quite demanding physically. I always try to perform my own tantrums. Um, <laughs> then there's the ethical dilemma about adverts. Some things we're asked to advertise might compromise us morally. Mm, so we charge more. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then again, you might be asked to do an advert for a charity and you have to weigh up whether you should charge at all. Give a man a fish, he will eat for a day. Give him an advert with a fish in it and he'll eat at the ivy. <laughs> 
Apparently, those overzealous young people who stand outside shops making us fill in direct debits to charities are paid. But I suppose it is a kind of acting job, maintaining that level of friendliness toward people who universally hate you. <laughs> I resent being called folks by anyone who's not a country singer. <laughs> I also revile charity muggers for that horrible little sideways hop they do to waylay you. <laughs> Charities today are becoming less shy about taking on a campaigning role. Political action and voluntary work no longer seem to be alternatives, but to complement one another. I believe that this is not because charitable work is less dominated by old ladies, but rather because old ladies are now the cutting edge of the radical left. <laughs> One of the results of the war on Iraq was the beginning of a new alliance in opposition to it. There were new faces on the anti-war demonstrations, posh old ladies from Cheltenham climbing down from the coaches with carrier bags, saying, I've made some petrol bombs. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was the right thing or not. I've got unleaded, elderflower and diesel... <laughs> Nettle and four-star. That's a little young. Now, I've written out some ideas for things to chant, but I'm afraid most of them contain the F-word. <laughs> this was a war too far, arguably conducted for the same reasons as most American-led wars, but blatantly so. And people are questioning everything now. It's dawning on them that private enterprise and free enterprise are not the same thing, that the world is being brought under the tight control of corporate might. People who might consider themselves conservatives don't really like it. They like the idea of shopkeepers and farmers and food with no air miles. <laughs> they remember when food was fresh and seasonal. People are against GM food, and they're not falling for the corporate line that they will enable us to feed the world. There is already enough food to feed the world. It's just that instead of it being eaten in Kenya, it's flown here, where we put it in the fridge until it goes blue and hairy and then throw it away. <laughs> At least in America they have the decency to eat all of it. And one of the ways of disrupting the cultivation of GM crops has been to take direct action, ripping up the plants, a kind of militancy ideally suited to older activists because it's basically weeding. <laughs> you might ask, what does this have to do with living life to the full? Well, it's to do with making a difference, making our mark on the world, leaving something more than a bench that proclaims he loved this spot. I don't necessarily mean that we all want to be commemorated, although we'd all do well to plan our funerals before others decide what we would have wanted, which revolves around their diaries and the cost of handles. <laughs> I've already decided that I want to be scattered. Not cremated, just scattered. <laughs> Bits of me left in carrier bags behind the bowls in various service station laboratories. Not because I want to cause anyone any distress, but because it will make it very hard for the church to be involved. <laughs> I digress. Although the point of making the most of life isn't to be remembered but to get the most out of it, it would be nice to be able to look back and not think... Now, I know I've forgotten something. Oh, yes, to make any kind of impact at all. <laughs> you might have a whale of a time, but look back and think, what was it all for? Very often this is a result of drink or other stimulants, which can lead to us having a terrific time, but not necessarily to our having a terrific life. A full life is seldom full of drink. You can feel strangely empty when you've thrown up over your neighbour's front wall. <laughs> Very few people who have lived a full life were drunk for absolutely all of it. Baroness Thatcher, perhaps. But, <laughs> but she is blessed with that rare quality. She is completely indifferent to all the pain and misery she has wrought in the lives of others. <laughs> Most of us experience guilt, shame, or at least embarrassment. But perhaps you have to sober up for a while for those emotions to catch up with you. 
In fact, alcohol has a built-in regret factor in the form of the hangover. It's a rather cruel chemical property to trick us with euphoria before making us depressed. At least poisonous berries don't taste nice. The flavour must be disguised quite carefully. <laughs> then again, alcohol doesn't taste nice either until we get used to it. Drinks manufacturers have realised this. No longer do young teens have to force their way through pints of old bedwetter in order to acquire a taste for it. They can enjoy the taste of white rum completely masked by the flavour of their favourite childhood medicines. <laughs> but before the drinks industry came up with the idea of dissolving packets of refreshers in pure alcohol... <laughs> We used to taste beer, wine and spirits for the first time and think they were horrid. So nature does seem to be trying to warn us. In fact, nature only produces alcohol accidentally when it rots things. Cattle sometimes get drunk on rotten apples, unless that's a myth put about by unethical farmers with BSE-stricken herds. <laughs> no, no, Daisy's not mad. She's just pleasantly tipsy. But in any case, humans don't tend to eat rotten food because it's not very nice. So how did we get into alcohol production? Well, I suppose early fermentation processes might have been happy accidents. Although why you would think stump up and down in a vat of grapes if you weren't already pissed, I don't know. <laughs> but let's say bad storage facilities and a lack of refrigeration turned early juice bars into wine lodges. That still doesn't explain distilling. Someone must have been so drunk they put the kettle on to sober up, but because we all know they drank alcohol because of a lack of clean water, the only thing to put in the kettle was their homebrew. And as they were still waiting for coffee and tea to be brought back from the new world, they lost patience and started licking steam off the walls. <laughs> uh, condensation. Don't condescend to me. Upon licking the walls, they found that their simple brew had become a fine moonshine spirit that was both horrible tasting and made them blind. <laughs> and thus was man's first still created. Now, Juliet, unlike Gordon, you're a woman. And according to your stereotype, you've just started to drink enormous amounts in what the experts call binges, despite the fact that drunkenness traditionally has been a healthy, vigorous, manly pursuit, unsuited to the ladyfolk who should spend their leisure hours more appropriately sitting on a horse sideways to facilitate childbirth. Well, I don't drink that much because I've usually got the car. And do you sit sideways in that? Not for childbirth, only to conceive. <laughs> Although before my kids were born, I did buy a special birthing car seat from the National Childbirth Trust. <laughs> it's in-car birthing for the busy woman on the go. Oh. The theory is you want to be as relaxed as possible. By driving? Yeah. It's only men who get all tensed up driving. We're at our most relaxed. Music's playing, been shopping, we're doing our makeup. So you, uh, you had relaxed driving births? God, no, I had to have two caesareans. Babies cut from the wreckage, you might say. My uterus was entirely yeah, 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 inside okay. out. <laughs> Of course, we drink as a sedative, and the problem with that is we're diminishing our consciousness. Whole sections of lives are a blur. And once we're over 40, that's happening even when we're sober. <laughs> Life goes by too fast, and it goes faster and faster as we get older. At my age, a year seems so short, it's hardly a useful measurement of time. We sneer at people who buy their Christmas cards in January, and before we can finish sneering, it's December again. The intervening months are lapsing in the blink of an eye. In fact, I'm sure there was no April this year. Um, Jeremy, mm? you're not supposed to buy your Christmas cards. People are supposed to send them to you freely. Well, yeah, we can't all be light. <laughs> and the more we enjoy life, the more quickly it goes. Sometimes we need to spend time with relatives just to slow things down. 
We also try to create lasting monuments to our existence, to feel that we're leaving something behind. I used to resent the idea of inheritance, of people just having something as a birthright. But my daughter's growing up, and I don't feel like she should have to stand on her own two feet. She didn't ask to be my daughter. I can't offer her wisdom because she wouldn't listen and I don't have any. I have no wealth, so all I can think of is shameless nepotism. That's how the world works. I can't get her a start in the shipyards, so if I'm able and she's interested, I'll pull what strings I can in radio. Entertainment is full of people whose parents were entertainers, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're not good at what they do. Lisa Tarbuck is a funny and engaging woman and talented performer. So where does she get it from? <laughs> it hasn't yet been established whether talent can be inherited, but let's say it can. Clearly, some people seem to have innate talent. But does that make them more deserving of happiness? The truly insufferable people are those who think their good fortune is deserved. And if they've had to work hard to get where they are, they're even more insufferable because they're not only vain but angry. Like Michael Caine. He has everything a person could want and everybody adores him, but he still feels picked on, rejected, as though we banished him. Clearly, he fails to grasp that the word exile loses all poignancy with the word tax in front of it. <laughs> Of course, part of me would like my daughter to get on in life by virtue of her own merit. But why? Being better at something does not make us better people. And there are successful people who are good at what they do, but they're not necessarily the best at what they do. And how can we know if there are better candidates when job descriptions are increasingly so nebulous? Hosting a successful chat show involves skill. But how do you spot the deserving candidates who've been passed over and whose resentment is turning them mad? Were the American interrogators at Abu Ghraib just frustrated David Letterman's? <laughs> Is Lindy England a researcher monkey? <laughs> We'd all like a time machine to take us back to the Vienna of 1910, see an art collector poring over the works of a struggling painter by the name of Adolf Hitler and whisper, just buy the bloody picture, please. <laughs> Well, I'm about to wrap up this series, but before I do, I'd like to thank the cast. Gordon, good luck with everything. I hope you get another nine o'clock militarist pot boiler to keep the wolf from the door. Thanks. <laughs> Stick at it and you could become the Ross Kemp of acting. <laughs> Juliet, what can I say? I hope this opens some doors for you. Mopey Russian stuff at the National is all well and good, but it's not going to get you a part in a sitcom. <laughs> right. So, that's about it. I think it was I who said, life is what you're left with when nothing else pans out. But that doesn't mean we should despair. I suppose the lesson is to give things your best shot, be grateful for what you achieve, and not get too screwed up about what you don't achieve. And just hope that when the day comes for your kids to choose the words on your headstone, they don't do it in text language. Good night. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by and starred future corpse Jeremy Hardy. It also starred living legend Juliet Stevenson and widespread myth Gordon Kennedy. The producer was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC. BBC.